Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Food Flow, the podcast dedicated to the in-depth exploration of the beautiful world of food. My name is Ivor Margerison from thefoodflow.com, and I am joined today by a honeybee enthusiast who is passionate about exploring and sharing the rich historical and cultural relationship between bees and humans, and teaching the abundant values of beekeeping, both in regards to what we can do for the bees and what lessons we can learn from them. Ariella Daly from honeybeewild.com. Ariella, great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. So between their role as agricultural pollinators, the recent health trends, and the various propaganda you've likely seen at your local co-op, you probably have heard without much detail that honeybees are a good thing. And they are. But today's talk aims to dig a bit deeper into the beautifully mystical world of bees by exploring the historical value of the human and honeybee relationship in terms of the nutritional and medicinal benefits, as well as their environmental role. We'll also be getting into the current problems that colonies around the world are facing and discuss the differences between modern industrial methods and Ariella's more bee-centric ideologies of beekeeping. But to kick things off, Ariella, let's start with your honeybee story. How did you get here? <laughs> Great. Yeah. When it comes to bees and beekeepers, you'll hear a lot of interesting stories. But what I love to hear people say over and over again, which is true for me as well, is the bees found me. I didn't find the bees. <laughs> I know, right? So it's it's true for me and any beekeeper. We tend to be a fanatical little group here. I was handed a book by someone who runs a fantastic nature education program. And the book was called The Shamanic Way of the Bee by Simon Buxton. Up until that point, I didn't have really any interest in bees or beekeeping. I didn't know a lot about it. This was back in 2008. And the book had very little to do with beekeeping. It was instead about a mystery school tradition about bees that is based in the Celtic lands, England, Ireland, and actually traces back to ancient Greece, etc., etc. The book piqued my interest. I had always been interested in the kind of human relationship to nature, and that persists. And I found out that they had a school. So I went over to England, took a class, and while I was in England, a hive of honeybees moved into a hole in the wall of my house <laughs> and lived there for a few years behind my bed. So I was the lucky girl who got to sleep with a hive of honeybees in the wall of my house. Not the most usual way to get into beekeeping. <laughs> and then got a chance to catch my own swarm in an apple tree. It was a giant swarm. It's the biggest swarm I've ever seen. And it was in the shape of a heart. So I was on the right path. I was stoked. They were talking to me. <laughs> and I actually caught my swarm based off of watching YouTube videos. So really just beginners diving in. And and then this whole... Uh... That's, that's funny. It really did kind of find you. They moved into your house. It was a heart shape. It was on your birthday. It's funny. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> uh, So, um, and then this eventually led you to uh, sort of creating honeybeewild.com and putting that project together. Absolutely. Yeah. I have actually continued to be really fascinated by bee and bee culture, human relationship to bees, human relationship to nature, and particularly women in nature and that whole side of things, which we can get into later, but I'm of the organic, natural, 
bee-centric beekeeping. And by bee-centric, I mean I'm focused on what is best for the bees. That may include not necessarily harvesting honey if it's not in the best interest of the bees that season. That includes not chemically treating the bees for some of their um, parasite and mite problems. So there's, there's a huge amount of information around what natural beekeeping is, but that is my focus, and I teach people how. And and then as we kind of get into some of the more uh, conventional methods, we'll we'll discuss how how different that is from a lot of the large scale methods out there. But I think one of the things about your site that caught my eye is uh, kind of your feminine approach to things. I mean, like the first thing on your site that you see is the beekeeping in skirts. So, uh, I mean, what's what, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, what's that all about, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you've, if you've ever seen a beekeeper, you know what they look like. They're in a big white suit and a huge veil, and they're all kind of in the hazmat suit, basically. I don't discourage that. You know, bees are stinging insects. So go ahead and wear whatever you need to wear. But the skirt, beekeeping in skirts, kind of has a double meaning for me. One, it's saying, hey, if you change your attitude, if you change your approach, maybe you don't have to be in this, you know, kind of fully protected state where you're manipulating a hive enough that they're going to want to sting you a bunch. And that's why you need that gear. If you go into a hive with a little bit more of a gentle, um, and when I say feminine approach, I don't just mean women, I'm women. What I mean is working with bees in a way that is just a little bit more gentle. With that methodology, for instance, I often go into a hive. I'll wear a veil because I definitely want to protect my eyes and my nose and my mouth, which is the place the bees are most likely to sting. But I often don't wear gloves. Um, I often literally do wear skirts. And the other side of it is that the first beekeepers were supposedly women. And uh, women were the first brewers. They were the first makers of mead, which is a honey alcohol. Bees have been culturally associated with the sacred, with mythical powers for centuries, you know, going all the way back to ancient Egypt. There's records of bees being really seen as quite mystical and quite powerful. Also, I'm sure this is part of it, beehives are predominantly filled with female bees, and they are cared for or centralized around a queen bee. So you do have male drones in the hive. You have ma- the, the drones are the male bees, but it's a strong, strongly associated with the feminine. Well, it's different. All the it's interesting. All the different aspects of the feminine parts of it throughout history and the use. But I think it's really interesting how you talk about the beekeeping uh, in terms of feminine being kind of more delicate. And I like that idea of like a little more jazz and a little less rock and roll. Like like going in there delicately like being friends with the bees as opposed to some of those times you see people with like the smoker and like crowbars and like aggressively doing things. So oh, yeah, that probably makes sense. It seems like a good idea. <laughs> Although you can be gentle and firm. So I would say <laughs> delicate might not be quite the right word, but it, it's, it's getting there. It's, okay. it's, uh, the it's healthy, gentle. <laughs> the, healthy, the healthy balance of the two. I like it. So kind of getting into like the cultural and the human relationship of it. One of the things I find fascinating is how long um, it's been going on and how rich it was in history, like you mentioned. And I'm curious as to what you think maybe the beginning role of honey was. I mean, was it just a source of sugar and nutrition or was it possibly things like meat and alcohol that were, you know, drawing people towards it? 
Right. Well, you see, you see honey being revered, bees being used way back into prehistoric times. There's actually prehistoric rock art in ancient Africa depicting honey gatherers. So before you had beekeepers, you had honey gatherers and you'll, you'll see pictures and still done today actually of people climbing long ladders or climbing ladders to get up to beehives that were most likely on cliff walls or in caves, etc. And that honey held highly medicinal, it was very highly medicinal and still is today. Uh, it doesn't take much to observe that a bee goes from flower to flower, returns to the hive, and within that hive there is an incredible ambrosia, so to speak, or food of the gods. And I'm sure people figured out early on that, that this, aside from being sweet and delicious, but also incredible healing properties and not just nutritionally honey has been used for forever to heal wounds um, you can actually heal burns with honey we can get into that later um, it was used to embalm bees were also seen as psychopomps which means that they they were um, kind of messengers or carriers of of people or spirits, I should say, from this life to the afterlife or to the underworld. A lot of tombs were shaped as beehives in, um, like Mycenaean tombs, for instance, were shaped as beehives. So there's a lot of association with, um, with honey, not just on a nutritional level, but also a spiritual level. Another example, when you speak of mead, which is a fermented honey wine, it's delicious. Everyone should have it. Everyone should enjoy it. Um, I've just moved up to the Pacific Northwest and I am just amazed by how many meteries there are here. It's one of the fastest growing industries when it comes to the, the craft brewing industry oh, wow. out there. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think that's, that's kind of a good shift. Let's fast forward a little bit. So in modern, what's the relationship today between humans and bees? What, I mean, what role is it playing? One of the major roles for bees right now, aside from providing honey in the agricultural industry, is pollination. And I have some, I don't know, controversial, controversial opinions around <laughs> some of the pollination practices that are going on today. I think if you look at any agricultural practice within the food industry, you're going to see places where we may have lost our way a little bit and places where our relationship to the animal that we are utilizing is not to the in the best interests of the animal of really ultimately human health and nutrition or of the earth itself and honeybees are no exception I, there's you know, it's commonly said that one third of all of our food comes from honeybee population. I would say pollination, excuse me. <laughs> um, I would say that that's more one third of our food comes from pollinators. So you really do have to include the native pollinators in the United States, for instance, and other countries. So when you're looking at pollination and the, the need for pollinators, you're also having a really big problem with loss of honey honeybee hives, loss of colonies through a colony collapse disorder or through varroa mites and looking at all sorts of different ways to treat for that, using chemical treatments, all sorts of things. But in the meantime, you're still having this huge amount of 
commercial industry using honeybees to pollinate crops, particularly the almond crop in the Central Valley of California. There are bee colonies flown in, trucked in from all over the world and absolutely all over the United States just for this major pollination event. Yeah, that's where uh, all the honeybees, uh, North Dakota, where I'm from, all the, I was talking to a, a honeybee keeper up there and he said, as winter was coming, I was like, oh, so are you uh, fixing to like hibernate your hives or, and he's like, oh no, we, we put them on a, on a semi bed and bring them down to California. It's like there's no off season for these guys. Like <laughs> it's incredibly lucrative. And now think about an animal that's meant to live more or less in trees. So trees are highly insulated. Trees don't get up and move around. When a colony <laughs> wants to reproduce, it will create a swarm. It'll leave its home, and that's when it might move. But it's leaving half of the half of its hive behind, and so it's basically creating a second colony. What you uh, what you kind of explained there with like kind of big ag and, and the issues with it. I mean, it sounds like if you change some of the words and some of the labels, it sounds like an issue that comes up in our food system with a lot of different things. I mean, you like most animals, um, for instance, they end up uh, because of demand and because of the way the system is in place, uh, if they become exploited. And it's not it's not to say that. Uh, any agricultural or food system practices are inherently evil, but when uh, you know supply and demand get too involved and we get alienated from the roots of things, and it's a scary thing. No, and I you know I can't argue necessarily against people's livelihood. I understand that, but I do think that there can be, you know, for instance, larger scale organic beekeeping practices that really are bee centric. What's most interesting to me, what's what's seems most promising to me is all the people out there and re- returning to some of the older uh, ancient beekeeping practices. There's a huge movement in Poland right now getting back into tree beekeeping. So actually setting up log hives or cutouts in trees where you can install a hive and then harvest honey out of that tree on a ladder the whole thing (laughs) Uh, now you know i I don't think that's going to be done in in large-scale commercial practices but that's not necessarily what i'm interested in either i'm interested in small-scale urban or backyard beekeeping everybody has chickens these days i just moved to (laughs) portland and you know i'm I'm from the bay area everyone's used to okay yeah i got a chicken coop in the backyard and i've got my own little garden and look at my tomato plant well why not have a colony of bees why yeah yeah i've seen the the backyard chicken movement that's funny yeah why not have a have a box of bees next to them and honey with your eggs i like it that's good and and really really cool you know big businesses are starting to do that as well the paris opera house has hives Uh, let's see notre dame has hives you've got hives on top of the fairmont hotel in i'm gonna get this wrong well, I'm just going to say that there's there's hives on a top, on the top of a number of world famous hotels in San Francisco, New York City, that's awesome. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, and, that, and what that's I mean, it's creating awareness. I mean, it's putting it on people's radars because uh, that industrial way of doing things that we so often do with food, it's not the only way. You know, it's not people would be like, oh, so you don't want almonds? It's like no, like there's other ways to get things. We just have to question it. We have to show that there's problems. We have to question things. And that's when we start working towards, you know, sustainable solutions. But let's let's shift over to honey. I mean, what, do, what do we know about honey and what are the differences between 
the sort of honey that maybe comes from a bee-centrically tended hive compared to the commercial honey at the store, like you mentioned. Right. Well, what do we know about honey? We know that we want it, and it's delicious. <laughs> and it's it's like, you can't go wrong. It's so good. <laughs> There's actually entire honey-tasting charts now, honey-tasting wheels, because it's become such a kind of craft artisanal honey industry out there so there's a whole nother area that's blossoming and opening up no pun intended um <laughs> you know honey tasting tasting varietal honeys that are you know i've, I've got such a collection i've got varietal honeys from carob trees in portugal or pine trees in france and you know, I've, tra- I've traveled a lot so I, I get to bring things home it makes my suitcase very heavy <laughs> <laughs> But um, nonetheless, you know, honey is people are really diving into the beneficial uses of raw organic honey. Raw organic honey is going to be honey that's uh, not it's not heated. So heat breaks down when you heat honey up. Um, it breaks down the enzymes that are so beneficial to honey. It kind of cuts a lot of the nutrients. It almost just becomes like pure sugar as opposed to being a nutrient rich food. Uh, raw honey has pollen granules in it. You actually want to look for that. It doesn't matter if your honey is runny or crystallized. That actually just depends on the nectar source and where the bees are are getting, what flowers the bees are getting their honey from. Although typically in a conventional supermarket if you're picking up honey and it's it's you know really runny that's because it's corn syrup so when you see that kind of crystallized dark or crystallized really light beautiful raw organic honey it, people tend to say always look for that I, I agree yeah that's that's good you know that that stuff is going to be um, probably filled with pollen it's going to be antiviral antifungal it's going to help with allergies etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you find you know dark runny honey as which is typically what happens when you heat honey it gets darker and more runny that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you you see that it's you know not you want it to be unfiltered you don't want it to you don't want the pollen to be filtered out of it you want it to be unheated so just look for those kinds of things on the labels and hopefully you want it to be from a local beekeeper if you've got really bad allergies one of the best things you can do is get honey not just any honey but get a local source and there's so much available out there. You go to a farmer's market, find some local honey, eat it by the spoonful. If you have sleep problems and problems falling asleep at night, I've heard and I've tried a spoonful, like a tablespoonful of honey at night before bed actually increases kind of the amount of the, the benefit you get of the sleep that you do have, for instance, uh-huh. and it helps you fall asleep. Manuka honey, there's another thing we could talk about. Manuka honey is a kind of a honey that comes from New Zealand from the manuka flower, which is similar to the tea tree, tea tree flowers, and it's highly, highly coveted. So coveted, so good for your health that beekeepers are actually able to helicopter in hives. Again, this gets back into like moving bees around and moving hives around, but nonetheless, helicopter in hives to manuka groves. Manuka trees don't flower every year, so when they do, it's kind of a, a big deal, and they can helicopter them in and afford the cost of it because manuka honey is so fantastic. I think it's often like 30 bucks for a little jar in the, in the store, <laughs> but I have used it to clear colds. I've used it on burns. I've used it, um, you know, honey works really well on animal cuts and burns, on sores, 
Manuka honey is now used in hospitals. You can actually get um, burn bandages. It was really um, popular, not Manuka, but honey in general and propolis, which is another hive product in World War II, really common to use it as, as wound dressings. I had to go to the, a doctor and uh, for something and I had a, a cut and he said, I'll oh, just put some honey on it. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. this is a doctor like a couple weeks ago. So it's, it's much more in the, in aware, in, in a mass awareness right now that it's, it's healing properties. Yeah, it's a, I have a, my personal success story with it when honey first got on my radar in high school was I was, uh, I was told to um, put Manuka honey mixed with cinnamon on my face at night and I'm pretty convinced it cured my acne. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Go. I stand by it. Uh, it's, it's powerful stuff. And it's, um, and like with the allergies, uh, just to, to get into that, I think I've had it explained to me similar to the way almost like a vaccine works. Basically you give, you expose yourself to, uh, whatever it is that your allergen is. And in this case, it's, you know, outdoor allergies, which would be in the honey. And it's almost like wetting your immune system's appetite for it. It kind of recognizes it. It understands it. And then every time you go outside, your body doesn't freak out and your nose doesn't start running. Um, Correct. And I've I've heard a lot of, you know, a lot of success stories with it. Uh, It's honey is a powerful thing. But the sleep one is a little confusing for me because I was under the impression that Bruce Lee used royal jelly and honey before his fights to give him energy. So if it makes you, it helps you sleep and it gives you energy. (laughs) Uh Yeah, it does. It does. I know it's confusing. It's kind of a cure-all. It's great for digestion too. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the thing that's most, it's it's sugar, like sugar energizes you. Right. But I'm actually not sure why, but it, it does work as a sleep aid. The sugar in honey will give you energy, but also the pollen properties. And so I'm going to come back to this pollen thing again, specifically when you mentioned the allergy thing. Pollen is collected from all of these different flowers. Pollen is the thing we're allergic to, right? That's the thing that makes us sneeze. Well, when you have those little bits of pollen in the honey, when it's unfiltered honey, that's what's helping. Yeah, I've heard heard the bee pollen. I've heard stories about uh, like athletes and like long distance marathon bikers and stuff using bee pollen and turning to these different products. I mean, it's it's insane when you start when you start looking into it. The different stories people have. I mean, it's. yeah, oh, it's it's incredible. It's great for fertility as well, and for women who have suffered miscarriage, taking pollen can really help to kind of uh, stabilize and balance the uterus. Well, and uh, and and like I mentioned, uh, honey can also be mixed with water and turned into mead. Have you have you experimented with any of your own mead making? Pretty decadent. It's pretty delicious stuff, and it has. If you haven't had mead, it, it has a little bit of a different effect you know how people talk about champagne kind of makes you like giddy and and, and lighthearted. mead has a very kind of aphrodisiac more than your average alcohol effect it's very warming energetically it's one of those kind of special magical alcohols that really is it's it's an upper for sure (laughs) yeah yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. and like and like you said, I mean, maybe people are catching on to this with the the rise in meaderies. I've certainly seen more meat even available at local liquor stores. And so between that, I mean, and their role that people are picking up as their importance in agricultural systems and the crave for honey, where do you kind of where do you see this stuff going? When what is the future of bees? Where do where do you think it will be in the next ten years? I guess. I think like any industry that's having to adapt to climate change and the world we're in, it's there's a lot of shifting focus and really creative 
business models and business ideas. Like I mentioned, honey tasting, pretty cool movement. So there's a lot out there to do and a lot of ways that you can get involved yourself. Um, if you want to get involved, start with planting, though. That's that's what I always say. If you want to help the bees out, A, do not use pesticides. You will kill them. It's just don't do it, please. And ask your neighbors not to use pesticides and plant for pollinators. There's great resources out there. The Pollinator Partnership is a great one. But I like to think of it as, well, if you like to cook, plant some of your kitchen herbs because chances are they're going to be great pollinators for bees. Sage, lavender, rosemary, thyme. Bees love them. And so, I mean, and, and I've seen those before, kind of the pollinator uh, planting mixes. I mean, what you mean is, I mean, planting uh, flowers that are going to provide nectar to honeybees, right? Absolutely. And luckily, a lot of the things we plant for pollinators are things that we benefit from as well. So you put bees in your yard and you've got some fruit trees or you've got a vegetable garden. Trust me, that garden is going to go off within a year or two. It's an exciting time to uh, to get involved with it by planting. Or my next question, what if uh, you've been convincing enough as to the mystical awesomeness of honeybees? <laughs> How does someone get involved? How does someone get a hive in their backyard? Right. Great. So there's a lot of wonderful resources out there. But the first thing is to a find out if you can in your city. There are different rules. Cities like San Francisco and Portland have pretty open, lenient rules around beekeeping. Other cities do not. So be aware of that. Check in with your neighbors. Uh, and then there's kind of a checklist for me. One, find out if you have a good water source to create one. Find out where you're going to put your bees, where they're going to get enough sun and shade. And choose a hive. So there's three three different hive styles that I like to work with, but I particularly love top bar hives, and that's what I specialize in when working with clients. I work with clients both over the phone, long distance, which is really fun. People send me pictures of their hives and that sort of thing, <laughs> or I visit people in person in the local, uh, now Portland area. Um, and another, so you can decide on your hive, choose your hive, and choose your source of bees. This uh, in this in the winter when you're looking at January, February, March, that's the time to be ordering bees, and or getting yourself on a swarm list. You can get bees from a swarm by going out on a swarm catch yourself, or signing up with you know local beekeepers to hopefully get get a swarm from them if they catch a swarm that's the best way to get bees it's the most natural way to get bees but you can also buy bees in packages so that would be that would be one of the kind of the general here's what you do to start beekeeping educate yourself talk to the bees i know that sounds crazy but that's one of my methods i start just talking to them in my in my head like hey bees <laughs> want to hang out <laughs> Well, and this uh, and that sort of way, like the way that you talk about your relationship with bees and like the passion and energy, it really is something that I've seen uh, amongst a lot of of small scale beekeepers. And on that on that end, it's not like why would I keep bees? I can just go buy honey. I mean, it's so much more than that. It's a it's a hobby. It's a relationship. I mean, it's it gives you so much more than just uh, you know obviously the honey's a benefit, but <laughs> yeah. And if you're lucky, you get stung. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Bee stings, uh, there's a whole therapy uh, out there, bee sting therapy. It can be really, really healthy, particularly for those who suffer from things like MS, arthritis, uh, tendonitis. There are kind of legends out there that you know beekeepers who get stung regularly don't get cancer and that kind of thing. I, I, that's not a fact. It's just the kind of, one of those kind of myths that runs, runs yeah. 
out there, but it, it has, there's something to it. Um, there's something to working in nature. There's something to working outside. There's something to letting yourself get stung. Obviously, I'm not recommending to run out there and get stung. <laughs> People do have anaphylactic shock. It does happen. However, a lot of, you know, big kind of reactions to a bee sting are fine and normal as long as they're localized in one spot. You know, my hand will swell up real big sometimes and sometimes it won't. And that's generally an okay thing as long as, you know, you don't get stung in the hand and your foot swells up. That's when you have to, that's well, when you get worried. Well, and, that's, and that seems, and that's kind of the, I think one of the misunderstandings with honeybees is that a lot of people have negative associations uh, with like wasps and hornets and things like that. Like they have their childhood memories of getting aggressively attacked and that's not honeybees. I mean, aren't generally like that. I mean, right. Mm -mm. No, they're so sweet. <laughs> you know, you talk to any beekeeper and they'll go, Oh, look at my sweet girls. Oh, look at the girls out there. Oh, they're being so sweet today. Like there, there's nothing like sitting next to a hive in the middle of summer and watching the girls bring in pollen and bring in nectar and hearing that happy hum. That's the sound of like life. It's the sound of just almost like it sounds like the, the heart of the world, just humming away, happy as could be. And on top of that, the scent of honey and propolis is just wafting towards you. It can't get better than that. You know, maybe you get stung once or twice. All right, it's healthy. <laughs> but they're not, you know, the only reason a honeybee is going to sting you is if they th feel threatened. So, you know, I've been stung many times, but I don't go into a hive expecting to get stung. Uh, I've had bees crawling all over my hands, bare hands, arms, and they don't sting you. They sting you when they feel threatened, and they'll often warn you by pinging. They, people say, like, pinging on your veil or pinging against you. They'll kind of fly at you and buzz at you or bump you and give you, like, hey, yo, we're not so into it right now. You've been in the hive long enough, or today's not the day, you know, whatever it is. And that, that requires listening. So it does take, and once you kind of build up that uh, that understanding, like you said, educating yourself, you are able to build a relationship. And it's really not like time to harvest the honey and going to battle. It's like uh, going yeah. and hanging out with the bees. I like it. I like it. Uh, yeah, actually recognize, have been known to recognize the face of their beekeeper. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an old tradition. I'll, I'll just say this one little thing. An old tradition called telling the bees. And it's a European tradition where beekeepers would actually go out and inform the hives when there was a birth or a death in the family. And bees have been known to literally make a mourning sound, like like a, a sad droning sound when a master beekeeper dies, when their beekeeper dies. And bees have been known to, there's stories of bees following a funeral procession to to the church more than once in, in you know, older European stories. Wow. Well, and that's, and that's why I think, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there's people with a vegan diet and, uh, have arguments against beekeeping for ethical reasons, which are understandable. But I think that's interesting. Like in these cases, like those sort of connections, it's a symbiotic relationship. I mean, and the beekeeper, it's not, he's not like aggressively taking all their honey. He's tending to them. And the way you talk about it, it's, it's a relationship and it's uh, mutually beneficial. I mean, when it's, you know, done right, I guess. 
Absolutely. There's even a time when it's beneficial to the bees to take some of the surplus honey. You just have to really pay attention and, and know that this is their stores for, this is their food for the winter. This is what's supposed to get them through the winter. A first year beekeepers isn't going to harvest honey as a rule. And uh, so, I mean, kind of, and I guess I kind of summoned things up. I mean, we've, we've touched on the nutrition and medicinal parts of it, that awesome mis- mystical history, kind of their role as pollinators. And, um, I guess kind of just to sum things up, I mean, where can people go if they are looking for more information? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a number of different resources out there. Of course, there's my website, Honeybee Wild. One of my favorite places to get hives from is a Portland company called Bee Thinking. They ship all over the place. Follow the Honey is a fantastic organization. Uh, Again, another website, followthehoney.com. They are raw honey sourced worldwide. And so they, they really get into relationships with beekeepers, relationships with the community, the, where the honey's coming from, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's good honey. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and what about, I mean, and, and as far as uh, your website, what about your, your social media? Can people follow? What do you, what's yeah, yeah. you on? got an Instagram beekeeping and skirts, uh, honeybeewild.com. And I do, um, I always offer clients a free 30 minute kind of Skype or phone consultation just to see if beekeeping is right for them at this time. Beautiful. You got, you got me excited. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to get a hive. I want to go eat some honey. I want to read about honey. <laughs> I'm convinced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ariella, I think, I mean, I think that's about, that's about it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot. It was a good time. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Again, that was Ariella Daly from honeybeewild.com. If you're interested in learning more about what she's got going on or getting some help with your own honeybee project, be sure to head over to her website. Ton of content, lots of beautiful pictures. And like Ariella explained, it's actually pretty casual to start up a hive in your backyard. A little work involved, obviously, but basically you'll get a pet-like loving relationship and a unique hobby. Plus, you're helping the environment and promoting a healthy food system and you get your own honey. I mean, really, I don't really know what you could else you could ask for. Anyway, my name is Ivermar Jarrison from thefoodflow.com. Thanks for listening. See you guys next time. Mm-hmm.